If you have your Bibles, will you please turn to Jude chapter 1. Jude verse 11. If you're not paying attention to the verse numbers at the end, you may think, wow, we've gone a long ways through Jude. Then you look at the verse numbers. We've covered three verses. And quite honestly, I'm going to speak quickly and leave some things for you to continue digging uh, just so that we can get through these three verses in the time that we have. Jude is a master at packing lots of truth into tiny little sentences. And we've seen that already. We'll continue to see that this morning. Let's read Jude 11 through 13 and begin. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Our Heavenly Father, we simply ask that you will speak to us as we have sung and prayed already We have desired to come to hear from You. We do not need to hear from men. We do not need to hear our own wisdom resonated in our own ears. But we need to hear the voice of God by the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the the theme continues to be this, this false teacher problem that is going on within the churches that Jude is uh, so uh, affectionate towards. He calls them beloved or dear ones. And Jude is very concerned about what is going on in these churches, namely these false teachers that are coming in and messing everything up. It's, it's It's very interesting timing that I'm finishing a class this week that we have been going through the book of Galatians and talking about uh, the similar problems uh, that are going on with those churches. And I keep thinking, I keep mixing the thoughts together. But the more that I study Jude and the more that I study Galatians, I realize the problems are different, but the problem is still the same. False teachers spreading false teaching and leading the people astray. They're just using two different tools to get there. Uh, Jude is dealing with this uh, lawlessness being taught, Whereas Galatians deals with legalism. That's extra, that's free, you don't have to pay for that. Let's now go to what you're expecting in Jude. Jude has been warning about these certain people since almost the very beginning of his letter. Jude has already described how dangerous their teaching is, how destructive their lives are, and will be met with destruction But I want you to notice that as Jude gets down to verse 11, he continues to talk about the dangerous doctrine that these teachers are are spreading throughout the churches. But now, it really gets moved closer to home. 
Up to this point, Jude has been warning them of a, gen- gener- a general broad danger. But now he wants them to see how these false teachers are affecting them. What that means for you, that there is a false teacher at large. And Jude will describe from both Scripture and nature just how destructive these people are. But we need to get from the, from the, from the onset that Jude is warning the people even though it sounds like he's speaking to the teachers. Very likely they were all in the same room. But it's, it's, it's uh, for the people's benefit, not necessarily just the, the, the false teachers. So we find here... Three woes from Scripture and six warnings from nature. So first of all, if you look at verse number 11, we see he starts off with this word woe. Now, this is not the woe that you say when you're on a horse. This is the woe that you say when there's a false teacher in the room. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. We read that a lot from Jesus. In fact, almost... Uh, two-thirds of the, of the uses of the word woe in the New Testament come from Jesus' mouth. Woes are not, not super uh, spread out throughout the, the New Testament. They're mainly in the Gospels where Jesus speaks them. He's the only one who speaks them in the Gospels. Words of woe. Then we find a, a big clump of them in the book of Revelation as judgment is being pronounced. And once Jude uses it, and once Paul uses the word. A woe is an announcement of judgment that is to come. But specifically, it is not judgment that has come, but judgment that is coming. So, woe is something that is not yet, but is certain. It is going to happen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, Tyre and Sidon. Woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. Jude says, woe to them. Uh, One writer here uh, explains that when Jesus says, Woe unto you, He is not so much pronouncing a final judgment as deploring the miserable condition in God's sight of those He is addressing. Their wretchedness lies not least in the fact that they are living in a fool's paradise, unaware of the misery that awaits them. The problem here is that these certain people to whom Jude is pronouncing this woe either don't know or don't believe the warnings that are in the Scriptures that Jude is presenting, that the whole Scripture presents, that the apostles have presented for the dangers of false teaching. I think that we can say that they know it in a generic sense. They've heard that. But in a real sense, they just don't believe it. Because if they did believe the warnings, they would repent. They would turn. But they sit among the church, they hear Jude's letter and warnings like his, they decide that it's just not as bad as Jude makes it out to be. Jude's exaggerating a little bit. It's really not that big a deal what we're teaching. It's not that different, in fact. It's actually really similar. They have somehow deluded their own thinking, deceived themselves, and they go about deceiving those around them. And so Jude wants to make very clear, not necessarily to the teachers themselves, but to the people sitting amongst them, 
What exactly is going to happen to you if you listen to these false teachers? And he gives us three examples. Once again, we have a triad. We have Jude's favorite uh, literary device here, using groups of three. And he talks about three men from the Old Testament. Now, I hope that you can flip through your Bible quickly and kind of see where we're going. But I've listed them for you as far as the references. And if you're unfamiliar with any of these stories, then I encourage you to go Go read through them and really understand what's going on. Because Jude is not telling them three brand new stories. Rather, in one line, he reminds them of a story very familiar to them. If I said they've been like the three little pigs, all of us are going to know exactly what, we're, what I'm talking about. Now, how I'm meaning that may take some more explanation, but we're all familiar with the story of three little pigs. Well, when Jude talks about the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah, they know exactly what three men he's talking about. But for us, separated thousands of years from the scene that it actually happened and from when Jude wrote, it may be a little less familiar. So we're gonna, I'm going to try to explain this, but with, with limited time, I, I, I recognize I can't say everything there is to say. So please... If you're not familiar with these, and if you, even if you are, go back and read these and really fill color in that picture that Jude paints for us. He begins with Cain's way in verse number 11. He says that they have gone or walked in the way of Cain. This is referring, Jude has in mind uh, this uh, conversation that Cain had with God in Genesis chapter 4. You remember Cain was the, the son, probably the first child of Adam and Eve, and uh, Cain was a farmer, and he had a brother named Abel, and Abel was a shepherd, and, and uh, at, at the appointed time, Cain and Abel brought offerings to God. They were going to worship God. They were going to do uh, homage to, to the Creator. Abel's offering was accepted, but Cain's offering was rejected by God. doesn't tell us all the reasons why, but we know that Cain was very upset about this, and God comes to him and talks to him. Now, in all three of these examples, I want you to notice the similarities. One of them is that God speaks to them. They have heard the words of God. They have been given the warning. They've been made, it's been made clear to them what God wants. In Cain's, in Cain's uh, situation, it's found in Genesis 4 and verse number 7. And God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, if we're reading the story of Cain and we're invested and, and we're, we're really tracking what's going on here, we're kind of at a crossroads at this point. Between verse 7 and verse number 8, we are asking the question, what is Cain going to do? His sin is not yet irreversible. He's not yet killed his brother. He's only been rejected. But God has not said I will never accept anything that you present. God has, has told him what he needs to do. So we ask the question as we read, and unless we already know the story, what's he going to do? He's at a fork in the road. Is he going to go this way? Or is he going to go that way? Is Cain going to make it right? Will he receive God's warning of the dangers of sin if he does not do well? Well, verse number 8 tells us exactly which direction he went. He killed his brother. And 1 John 3.12 tells us that Cain killed his brother because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain's actions were deliberate here. Cain knew what he was doing when he killed his brother. 
Now, we don't have a recorded command, thou shalt not kill until the next book in Exodus. But Cain knew what was going on. Remember, Moses is writing this because Moses is writing to people who already knew the commandment not to kill. Moses uh, was writing to people who already knew the commandment that God wanted worship done a specific way. And Cain was, was familiar with what God wanted because his brother had done it. And, and at the very least, why not go to your brother and ask, what did you do differently than I did? Why did God accept yours? Instead, he killed his brother. If, Cain, if, if God won't accept my sacrifice, then I'll make sure to get after those who, who he does accept. And he killed his own brother. These certain people then Jude connects with Cain because they likewise have heard the warnings of God and willfully and deliberately ignored them. They pick and choose what they want to believe. Mind you, they're sitting in the room. They know the truth. They're hearing it, but they say, eh, not that one. I'll take that, but well, part of this. I'll, I'll take that and you know, use it for my own means. And the way of Cain is the deliberate choosing of the path of wickedness. Next, he goes down to say that he has not only chosen the way of Cain, they followed the way of Cain, but they have... Uh, verse number 11, abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam's story is found in Numbers chapter 22 and actually covers several chapters. 22 through 24 is where we get the main one. And this is a, a fantastic story with a lot of uh, digging to go through and, and just a lot of really crazy things happen in, in Balaam's life. But Balaam was a, was, a, was a seer, a prophet, uh, not an Israelite. And Balaam was offered a reward by another king named Balak to curse Israel. He said, if you curse Israel, I know that whoever you curse is cursed, and whoever you bless is blessed. And so if you will come and just pronounce a curse on these people, I will make you uh, richer than your wildest dreams. Well, Balaam's like, hey, I don't know. I better ask the Lord about this. So he goes to the Lord that night, and he asks God, God, what do you want me to do? And God says, no, don't go. So Balaam gets up in the morning and says, I can't go. God said, no. Well, they come back with an offer of greater money. More money than you, more money than more money than you ever imagined. And Balaam says, well, I don't know. Let me go and ask God. You think God's mind had changed? No, the only thing that had changed was the offer. Had gone up. But Balaam was interested in the money. And eventually, Balaam found a way to get around God's intention. God revealed His plan to Balaam. And in the meantime, Balaam did go and pronounce blessings on the people of Israel. But, in the end, Balaam found a way to get what he wanted. If you skip all the way to chapter 31, we find Moses is, uh, is, is speaking to his army. And they had just finished a battle. And the Israelite army had spared the women. They had only killed the men. And Moses was angry about this because he says in verse number 16, Behold, these women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. As soon as the story of Balaam ends in chapter 24, verse 1 of chapter 25 talks about how Israel plunges into sexual immorality. And this comes at the teaching of this prophet Balaam who taught Balak how to entice Israel how to sin. And these certain people 
were like Balaam in the fact that they were willing to lead people away from God for money. Balaam knew what God wanted. He wanted to bless his people. He knew he wanted them to live right. The thing is, the other guy was offering him money. That was more important to Balaam than what God wanted. And Jude indicates that these false teachers, these certain people have somehow gained a position and a platform within the church. And now they are teaching their damnable heresies. And they're doing it for money. It's not enough that they're teaching the wrong stuff. They're doing it because it makes them profit. This is why Paul tells Timothy and Titus that elders and deacons within the church are not to be lovers of money and not greedy of dishonest gain. It's 1 Timothy 3 and his qualifications. Because just by virtue of the position, the person teaching is given a measure of authority and a platform in which to present ideas, whether they be right or wrong. And if the person's teaching and the person preaching is in it for what he gets out of it, rather than for the glory of God, he can do a lot of damage in a short amount of time. Now, notice the progression that Jude has already begun to lay out for us. First of all, they followed in Cain's path. They chose. They stood at the fork in the road, one way or the other, and they chose the way of Cain. Secondly, they have uh, uh, abandoned themselves in Balaam's error. This means that they have uh, fallen headlong. They've devoted themselves, given themselves completely in to the idea they are all on board now with the way of Cain that leads to the error of Balaam. And next, they perish in Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion is recorded in Numbers chapter 16. Go backwards in the Scriptures there. Korah was a Levite. Korah was a man that God had given special honor to due to the tribe that he belonged to. Korah was a man who was unhappy with the structure that God had established in Israel, namely Moses being the leader and Aaron being the high priest. Korah didn't like this. And so Korah decided to stage a coup against Moses' leadership and Aaron's priesthood, ultimately against God. In uh, Numbers uh, 16 and verse 3, Aaron, uh, Korah tells Moses and Aaron, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? No doubt Moses had been exalted. He had been given a position of authority, but he had not given it to himself. If you remember, it was not Moses' idea to, to rescue Israel from Egypt. It was not Moses' idea to be their leader. In fact, several times Moses said, God, find somebody else. I'm tired of this. I don't want to be in charge. These people are horrible. It was God who said, Moses, you will lead them, and I will speak to you, and you will be as God to them. You will, you will be on uh, uh, the mediator. You will be the one who will deliver the new covenant. Aaron will be the high priest, and he alone will perform certain duties within the, the tabernacle worship. Korah was among the people that knew these truths. Korah was there when Miriam, a chapter or two before, rebelled against her brother and was made a leper because of her rebellion. Korah was there when God spoke and, 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 and made it very clear that Moses was his man to lead his people. 
But Korah had his own ideas about how things should go. So he decided that he would uh, try to replace Moses with, well, he says everybody is holy, because he basically assumes that everybody was equally holy, and therefore nobody needs to be in charge. But if we really consider what Korah is after, Korah is after leadership himself. Korah wants power and influence. Unlike Balaam, who was in it for the money, Korah was in it for the power and the fame that he would get as the new leader of Israel. And instead of teaching Israel to sin, as Balaam did, he led the charge to death. You continue to read the story of Balaam down at the end of chapter 16. We find out that his whole family died. 250 soldiers that backed him died. And the next day, over 14,000 Israelites who sympathized with Korah died. All because one man pushed against God's determined order. These certain people Jude recognizes have perished in the rebellion of Korah because they reject the lordship of Christ, right? Verse number 4. He's already made that clear. They're, they reject authority. They deny the Lord and Master Jesus Christ because they want their own following. It's not good for their agenda for you to follow Christ. It's not good for their agenda for you to follow the established leaders within His church. It, they want position. They want power. They want money. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Willing to lead the people away from God for power and influence. Teaching new doctrines. Offering brand new insights and a less restrictive version of Christianity. All so that they may be followed. Now, everything that we need to get really is in that one verse. But Jude continues. Because now he offers six examples of uh, of, of the, these people within nature. And for sake of time, we're going to just really rush through them tonight. Uh, we'll take some more time and look through them, I believe. But I want to make sure that it's at least... Uh, a, we, I'll dig a little bit, and then I'll give you the shovel, and you can take it home this afternoon and keep digging. But notice that in all three of these examples, the men, all of them knew God's plan and heard it from God's mouth, all were dissatisfied with God's way, and they all rejected it, and they all perished. In different ways, at different times, but it was, the result was always the same, judgment and death. Now look in verse number 12 and verse number 13, and we find six warnings from nature. And Once again, Jude packs quite a bit into these metaphors uh, to, to really explain what's going on in the church. He says in verse number 12 that they are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Hidden reefs at your love feasts. This hidden reef describes the fact that they are hidden dangers. You know what a reef is, right? They're rocks that are underneath the surface of the water. Just underneath the surface, so if you're standing on top of the water, you can't see them, and all looks fine and safe until you get over it, and it tears a hole in your boat, and you're either shipwrecked or sunk. This is what they do at a love feast. Now, what's a love feast? We don't really have those, or do we? There is a little bit of, of question as to what this actually meant, but the two 
po most popular ideas actually kind of end up being the same idea. Either Paul, uh, Jude is talking about their, their communion times when they would come to the Lord's table, or he's talking about just common meals that these, would, that these uh, Christians would have together. Either way, Jude is describing a time where Christians would gather for a fellowship meal. Now, we don't call it a love feast, but we do have the Lord's table in which we all gather, in which it is intended for us to be drawn close together to have communion. Also, we go downstairs and we have fellowship meals in which we gather, we spend extended time together to break bread and to fellowship with one another. And both of these times are intended, at least partly, to bring Christians together. But hear what Jude is saying. In these moments, when Christians are supposed to be drawing close together, there are rocks that are going to wreck you and sink you and destroy you if you get close to them. And they show up in the very place you're supposed to get close to people. At a place where we are meant to draw close to one another, they shipwreck and destroy. And unashamedly, they make fellowship a dangerous and destructive thing to unsuspecting Christians. Maybe they're causing divisions within the church. Maybe they're threatening the unity in the fellowship. Or maybe they're just getting you alone to present these new ideas that they found in the Scriptures. Secondly, he describes them as selfish, selfish shepherds. i to say that fast. Selfish shepherds. Selling shellfish by the seashore. They are uncaring leaders. They take advantage of the sheep. Read Ezekiel 34 and see what God feels about shepherds who take advantage of sheep for their own personal gain. These are men who feed themselves but do not feed the sheep. Once again, they've been given a leadership position. But they're not interested in that position so that they might help others. They're interested in what they get out of it for themselves. Jesus talks about the hirelings, the hired hands in John 10, who care not for the sheep, but only for themselves. Thirdly, they are waterless clouds. I'm from Washington State. Most of you know that. I'm used to seeing clouds. Waterless clouds, I don't know much about them because it's just always raining in Washington. But we've seen them before. Uh, and in especially in a place where, uh, like, where Jude is writing in a, in a, in a drier region, uh, a waterless cloud is a horrible thing. If you're a farmer, you want rain. And when you see clouds coming that form that seem to promise rain, and yet they are swept away by the wind before they give you anything that you need. Jude is describing here a spiritual thirst that these people have. In, in, in essence, these are empty promisers. Waterless clouds are making big promises but delivering on nothing. Here today, promising to quench your spiritual thirst. And tomorrow, they are gone with the wind. Proverbs 25, verse 14 says, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he doesn't give. It's useless. It's empty. Fourthly, they are fruitless trees. Very, I think very closely connected to the waterless cloud is a fruitless tree. One describes spiritual thirst. The other describes spiritual hunger. These men are spiritually bankrupt. They are dry and empty. They don't do what you expect. They are fruitless trees. Do you remember the story of the, of the fig tree that Jesus cursed because it bore no figs? That's the idea here. But notice, it's not just at any tree. It's a late autumn tree. 
that last chance to produce fruit before the winter. They've given it time. It's not an early bloomer. It's not a mid-bloomer. It's not a bloomer. It is an unfruitful tree. And notice he goes on to further describe it as twice dead, not mostly dead, like Miracle Max, but twice dead, spiritually bankrupt. They are, they are uprooted. Uprooted is a term that is used to describe judgment. John the Baptist and Jesus both came and said the axe is laid at the foot of the tree. It will be uprooted. And it describes the judgment of God on disobedient people. They are twice dead because they bore no fruit because they are uprooted. Fifthly, they are wild waves. They are noisy polluters. Judas focusing here on their evil works. Because in one sense, he says they have nothing to offer you. But here he's saying they do offer something, but it's not anything worth having. What do they offer? Well, they don't offer things to satisfy your thirst. They don't offer things to satisfy your hunger. What do they offer? They offer noise, bluster, shame. Isaiah 57.20 is probably something that Jude had in mind when he wrote Isaiah 57.20 says that the wicked are like the tossing sea for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up refuse and mud. They leave behind filth and pollution. I'm reminded of what Paul says in the beginning of the, uh, the 13th chapter of Corinthians about the love chapter, but he begins by saying, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just boisterous, loud chaos and noise because these are selfish shepherds. They're not teaching you for your benefit, but for their glory. And all they bring is noise and wind. Sixthly and finally, it is the wandering stars. In those days, wandering or stars were used for the navigation. And you needed to rely on the position of the stars in order to find your way home, or your way across the sea, or your way across the desert, whatever it may be. But a wandering star is unreliable, and so therefore, these men are unreliable guides. You cannot trust them. In fact, if you want to do a little bit deeper of a study, the word wandering here is the same word as error as, a, as a, recalling Balaam's error. It's the same word. It's a planetase. And it's describing this wandering, erring star that is unreliable and leading astray all those who follow them. Now, let us just turn our attention for a moment to the application. What do we do with this? There are people moving amongst the loved ones of Jude, persuading them with their new ideas, promoting their sexual freedom, and big promises that end up delivering nothing. Jude recognized that they don't really understand what's going on with their own teaching. Either they do or they just don't care. And he also recognized that they're not really telling the people everything, namely their true character. They present themselves one way, but they in fact are actually something very different. These certain people are still around today. Now hear me closely. I am not encouraging one another to look to our left and right and say, are you the false teacher that he's talking about? But let me just ask some questions and, and, and speak to some groups of people to get your mind thinking in the right way. Because this teaching that is not the faith once delivered 
is dangerous and is heretical and is damning. It will wreck your life. These certain people today maybe not come out and attack Christianity outright. In fact, they may operate under the banner of Christianity. They may pretend that they are Christians just like you. And in fact, they say a lot of the same words. And they use the Bible just like we do. And they're pastors of churches or they're internet preachers or they're teachers on the, on the TV or whatever it may be. Wherever they are, they're out there. And they use smooth words, subtle differences to preach a damning doctrine. Jude wants the Christians to know that their end is always the same. It always ends in death for the people that preach it and for everyone who follows it. Number one then, we must avoid being these people ourselves. Very clearly, I read through this and was very easily drawn to making sure that I identify those people and then I was reminded that much of this is about a teaching false uh, believer. And as a teaching believer, I, I am reminded then I don't want to be this guy. I've been given a position of authority within the church. I've been given a platform to present ideas and to teach. And I don't want to be that guy that does not submit to Scripture, that does not receive God's design or who rejects God's will. As a leader, do I bow in submission to Christ? That's a question I've asked myself this week. It's a question you ought to ask yourself. Whether you're a leader in this church or not, are you in submission to Christ? Do you take what God says seriously? When you find it in the Scriptures, what do you do with it? Are you submitting? Or are you twisting and saying, well, that's, that's not for today. I don't have to do that. But, more to the point at what Judah's getting after, we must identify these certain people and avoid them. So let me ask the question. Who are you listening to? Now, not right now. My name is Tim. That's who you're listening to. Who else are you listening to? I can, only, I can watch out for what I'm saying and make sure what I'm saying. I'm not talking about our Sunday school teachers. I'm talking about outside of the four walls of this church, who are the people you listen to? Could you answer the question, why do you believe them? What is it about them that makes you say they're worth listening to? Is it because they're interesting and funny? Is it because they're on the bestsellers list? Is it because everybody else is talking about them? Is it because they sound good? They look good? Why do you believe them? Do you even know what they believe? Have you ever listened carefully to those people on the radio or on the TV or the people that get on the internet fame somehow? What do they really believe? They're so wishy-washy and squishy that you, you, you try to pin them down somewhere and they slip away real quickly. Internet fame does not guarantee orthodoxy. Just because they're on the bestseller list does not mean that their teaching aligns with Scripture. Parents, who are your kids listening to? I promise you they're listening to somebody. And it's people who are telling them this is truth. Now, they may not be listening to sermon podcasts, but they're listening to people. And they're listening to people who are telling them this is the way it is. Do you know who your kids are listening to? Do you know what those people believe and are teaching? 
Ladies, there's a lot of Christian, Christian women's material out there. More so, I think, than there is for the guys. Do you know who you're reading? Do you know what the people that are teaching you actually believe? Men, I first got to ask the question, are we listening to anybody? Because so often, ladies are listening, and the danger is that they're listening to the wrong person. But for guys, for the most part, our problem is we just ain't listening to anybody. We're busy doing other things, or at least making excuses why we're not going to listen to anybody. But are you listening to the right sources? You know, when we get around our coworkers and our neighbors, it's always encouraging to hear people that identify as Christians, right? I'm a believer in Jesus, and I, I went to church, and I heard these things. And that kind of it gives us a sense of like, oh, there's a connection here. Maybe we're, we're brothers, or maybe we're, you know, we're... But then you start to hear what they actually believe about stuff. Sometimes pretty, people come up with some pretty crazy ideas about Jesus himself or the Bible's teaching. You, you know how to identify a false doctrine. Teachers must be evaluated not by what they promise, but by what they deliver. What's the end? Don't look at the beginning. What are they actually giving you? Not by their charisma and their charm, by their character. Not by their popularity, but by their faithfulness to the Scriptures. I read across a a statement last night. It just stuck with me and I wrote it down in a few places. The most dangerous teachers are the ones who preach a different Christ but still call Him Jesus. Hear that. Because there's a lot of people out there that speak in Jesus' name, but they're not talking about the same one. It's a different Christ or in Galatians' language, a different Gospel which is not another. Folks, the world needs a healthy church that is full of strong, discerning, wise Christians. Dads, your family needs a wise and discerning husband and father. We, we this, this town, this state, this country, this world needs strong churches who hold to the truth like a ship needs a lighthouse. We've got to hold a standard. May we then know what the false teachers don't know or don't believe. That their judgment is certain and all who follow will be judged likewise. And secondly, Jude says he wants, the, he wants us to know what the false teachers aren't telling us. That their doctrine is useless and dangerous. God has revealed His will to us through the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. And He is the one we must listen to. And He has the words of life. There is nowhere else to go. God has spoken to us through His Word. May He give us grace then to submit to the Christ and be diligent students of His Word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Jude once again speaks of serious heavy things. There's not a lot of encouragement. I find a lot of rebuke, even in as I read myself. For we are all susceptible to following after false teaching and 
shepherds in wolf's clothing, sheep in wolf's clothing. Lord, it is a dangerous, dangerous thing to get around the wrong teachers. You have warned us many, many times in the Scriptures. God, give us grace to heed the warning. At least in this case, these people heard the warning and yet did not heed it. Cain's case, Balaam, Korah, Israel. All throughout the Scriptures and even today. So Lord, we pray that You would give us grace to heed the warning. For those who are unsure of salvation, give them grace to heed the warning that they must repent of their sin, turn to Christ, and be saved or perish. There is no other option. There is no other name. May we as the church hold fast to the faith once delivered for all. May we be confident. May we know it. May we, may we teach it to our children. Contend for it earnestly. And identify those who would change it and twist it. And lead us and our brothers and sisters astray. Lord, we desire for Your glory, not our own. For Your blessing, not man's. Father, do Your work in us, please. We pray in the name of Jesus.